Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I'm both an Israeli and an American. I was born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel served in the Israeli Defense Forces mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the First Lebanon War in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. As of today, November 30th, almost 100 hostages have been released. That leaves about 144 Israelis and 15 foreign citizens in captivity. We believe most are alive, But some are not. At least seven, maybe more, are dead. Hamas wants to continue the ceasefire with the hope that the world, that is, the American administration, will halt Israel from continuing to eliminate Hamas's military and political power. They have plenty of hostages, I think more than they imagined they would succeed in grabbing, so they are willing to release more. As I speak, there's a quartet meeting in Doha, Qatar. One is Dedi Barnea, the director of the Israeli Mossad. A second is William Burns, the director of the CIA. A third is Abbas Kamal, director of Egyptian intelligence. And by the way, this is the first time he's in Qatar to discuss these matters. And the fourth is Yassim El Thani, prime minister of Qatar. A very distinguished quartet, that means business. Now, why are they meeting in Qatar? Why not Egypt, which borders Israel and Gaza? Or Jordan, which has an overwhelming Palestinian population. Or Saudi Arabia, the very wealthy leader of the Sunni world. Well, we know that Qatar, like Hamas, believes in the Muslim Brotherhood ideology. We also know Qatar has funded Hamas with billions of dollars. We know that Qatar's main motive is to maintain Hamas's power, militarily and politically, in Gaza. All of these makes Qatar an enemy of Israel. So... Why does Israel agree to them being the main mediator? Is it only because they can possibly deliver? Nope, much more complex. So in order to really take a deep look into it, we have to understand the context of how Hamas rose to power in Gaza, and again, why Qatar has chosen to ally with it. In 2006, the Palestinian Authority held elections to the legislative authority, which basically is their parliament. In the elections, the Hamas organization won an overwhelming majority of 42.9% of the votes, which amounted to 74 seats in the council. And that's about 56%, again, 56% of the total seats. The Fatah movement, the main arm of the Palestinian Authority, won only 43 seats in that election, amounting to 33% of the total seats. The rest of the nine seats, or 11%, were won by several independent lists. To the detriment of President Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, this was a clear Hamas victory. Now, in any normal democracy, you either turn over power or somehow work together. Well, this isn't normal, and it's very far from even a semi-democracy. Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinians, had no choice but to give Hamas the mandate to try and form a government. All Hamas needed was 8% from the other parties to form a government. But 
no one was willing to do so. And it wasn't due just to an ideological disagreement. It was more a power struggle in which the Fatah, again, the main arm of the Palestinian Authority, didn't want to give up power. So, after failed coalition talks with other parties, Hamas established a government without the participation of other parties. Add to all of this world reaction to Hamas's victory. The United States and European democracies, with the blessing of Israel, claimed that if Hamas wants to be recognized internationally, they must amend their charter calling for the destruction, the elimination of Israel. Furthermore, the world democratic nations called for three things. One, recognition of the agreement signed between the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and Israel, including what was called the Oslo Accords. Two, the renunciation of support for terrorism. And three, recognition, that is Hamas's recognition, of Israel's right to exist. Of course, Hamas refused to do any of these. Now understand, Hamas's parliamentary victory was the first time the Palestinian Authority was led by a government with a majority in the parliament by Hamas. As a matter of fact, Hamas was seen as the real threat to the Palestinian Authority, so much so that one of the roles of the PA, the Palestinian Authority Security Forces, was to suppress and essentially remove Hamas from the scene. The Palestinian Authority officially recognized the election results, and Mahmoud Abbas, again the president of the Palestinians, head of the Palestinian Authority, appointed Hamas Ismail Haniya as prime minister. But Abbas only recognized Hamas' victory formally. He still worked to thwart Hamas' power using his security forces, which continued to follow the orders of Abbas, of himself. This, of course, led the two movements to a conflict, which quickly turned into violent clashes between Hamas and the Fatah in the Gaza Strip. As a result, President Mahmoud Abbas announced the dissolution of the Hamas government, dismissed the Prime Minister, Ismail Haniya, and declared a general state of emergency. Furthermore, Abbas outlawed the military arm of Hamas, the Azadin el Qassam Brigades. Hamas was quick to react. Their real power was in Gaza, and in a series of violent clashes, with scores of dead, Hamas was able to literally kick out the Fatah forces from Gaza. What perhaps quickened Fatah's elimination from Gaza, or I should say what definitely quickened Fatah's elimination from Gaza, was the fact that some of their leaders, caught by Hamas, were led to high-rise buildings and then thrown off of them. All this, of course, captured on camera. Once Hamas was in complete control of Gaza, and in accordance with their ideological belief, they began to shell Israel with mortars, rockets, and other bombs. As a result, Israel conducted military operations into Gaza, and that was the setting for Qatar to ally with Hamas. In 2009, as a result of an Israeli operation into Gaza, again after Hamas had fired at Israel, rocket fire, Qatar took several measures. One, they closed down the ceremonial Israeli foreign ministry offices. I say ceremonial because it was not a formal posting of the Israeli foreign ministry. The second thing that Qatar did is started putting billions of dollars into Gaza. Now, Qatar is a small country that is situated in the Arabian or Persian Gulf. Same thing. Its population is only about 2.6 million, of which 90% are not Qatari. As a matter of fact, only 313,000 are Qatari citizens, 
while 2.3 million are expats that work in Qatar. Qatar is basically one big sand dune with only 1% of its entire land that actually you can farm on. That's actually agricultural land. To understand proportions, Qatar is slightly smaller in area than Connecticut in the northeast of the United States. But it is extremely wealthy from natural resources such as oil and gas. It is so wealthy that it has one of the highest per capita gross domestic products in the world standing at $98,800. But Qatar has a huge weakness because it is so small with so few people and at the same time very wealthy, desired by other countries in the Middle East. It is very worried about its safety and mainly that of the ruling family. Because it is so worried, Qatar wants to act like a Switzerland, having no conflict with anyone that may threaten them. In order to do so, Qatar wants to extend its influence all over the Middle East. It desires peace with all countries in the Middle East and also desires to have influence in those countries and have them be somewhat dependent on Qatar. Having said all of that, Qatar knows, as does any player in the Middle East, that influence means heavy involvement in the Israeli-Arab conflict. If you want to be important in the Middle East, you must take a stand and be involved with the conflict. For Qatar, Hamas was a natural ally. As mentioned, Qatar is an advocate of the Muslim Brotherhood and Wahhabism ideology. You may ask, what is Wahhabism? A short answer to that is that Wahhabism is a form of Islam that rejects Islamic theology and philosophy that was developed after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. They believe in pure Islam. Wahhabism calls for strict adherence to the letter of the Quran and to the Hadith, which is the recorded sayings and practices of Muhammad. Wahhabi was actually the person who started the ideology. That was in the 1700s. And so the Wahhabists, not wanting to elevate anyone higher than Muhammad or Allah, called themselves Salafists and or el Mawahadin, believers in one God. Another important Arab country, that is Wahhabi, is Saudi Arabia. Hamas is part of the Muslim Brotherhood, viewed by Qatar as a pure and authentic Muslim people's movement that deserves their support. That would probably mean that Qatar would also agree that Israel shouldn't exist. But Qatar doesn't, at least openly, call for the elimination of Israel. Remember, they want to make peace with everybody. As mentioned, Qatar is small and also has a weak military. Hence, they run a foreign policy of zero altercation with anyone in the region that may be a threat. That means they are in contact with everybody. For example, Qatar allows for the United States to have a large military base because they're worried about Iran. But at the same time, Qatar is very cozy with Iran, which is next door to them. Qatar will also cozy up with other Muslim Brotherhood country, radical Muslim countries, and at the same time, continue a dialogue with Israel, including allowing Israelis to come to Qatar for the last World Cup, which took place only a year ago in November and December of 2022. However, there are still enthusiastic supporters of the enemies of Israel, Hamas being the top of that list. Qatar has poured billions of dollars into Gaza to Hamas. Some of that money was used for civilian uses, small parts of it. 
but most of it was used for building up a military force, which the Qataris obviously knew about and, of course, supported it. So now I'll ask the, the big question. Did Qatar know ahead of time about the October 7 attack? Perhaps one day we will discover the answer to this question. After all, Habas depends totally on Qatari money. Without it, they could never have achieved such military power in an entire un underground city in Gaza. Without the Qatari money, they'd probably die out fairly quickly. And so, it would seem very likely that Hamas would at least heavily hint of their intentions to their big boss. After all, the gruesome attack of October 7 could have led to an all-out Middle East war. We don't really know the answer to the question. That is, again, if Qatar knew ahead of time of the attack. But many in the community are assuming that they had more of a hint to the fact that the October 7th attack would indeed take place. And if that's true, then why in the world does Israel agree to have Qatar be the mediator? Keep in mind that Qatar completely denies the knowledge of the October 7th attack. And keeping in mind that even Iran possibly did not know about it, at least from what they say, then there are reasons why Qatar is indeed granted to be the mediator, the main mediator even, by Israel. So first of all, yes, it is because they can deliver. Perhaps they can deliver. In other words, use their strong influence over Hamas to free as many hostages as possible. Thus far, it has worked. It remains to be seen if the formula will continue to work. The second reason is that Qatar is a major player in the Middle East, as I've already mentioned, due to their wealth and foreign policy of diplomacy with anyone and everyone. The third reason is that when the war winds down and Hamas understands their ultimate defeat, can then Qatar serve as the land of exile for Hamas leaders, much like Tunis served as the land of exile for the PLO leaders in the early 1980s. And finally, the fourth reason why Israel would agree to Qatar's mediation is because Qatar, wanting continued influence in the region, and once the war winds down, will perhaps fund much of the rebuilding of Gaza, but this time closely supervised by Israel, that no military buildup is included. Now I'd like to tell you in short, about the Egyptian role as a mediator, or rather Egyptian interests in playing a key role in this conflict. So first off, be aware that Hamas and Egypt really dislike each other, and I'm being gentle. In the past, Egypt had an interest in a binding relationship with Hamas for three main reasons. One was in order to soften Hamas's attitude towards both the Palestinian Authority and towards Israel. The second is that Egypt didn't and still doesn't want a military confrontation between Hamas and Israel. This is because every time a conflict breaks out, the Egyptian populace sides with the Palestinian cause and hence Hamas, leading to contempt towards the Egyptian government relationship with Israel. As you well know, Egypt and Israel signed a peace agreement in the late 1970s, an agreement that holds strong until today. We live in peace although it's a cold piece. And three, Egypt sees as a goal to disconnect Hamas from the Muslim Brotherhood, as well as countries like Iran, Syria, Turkey, and Qatar, all of which are Egypt's rival at a minimum, and frankly, they are political enemies. 
As far as Hamas is concerned, Egypt is treacherous and even blasphemous. Why? Again, Hamas is Muslim Brotherhood. The Egyptian regime, a military regime run by former general al-Sisi, crushed the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood in the past few years and still, on a daily basis, hunts down any possible Muslim Brotherhood members or leaders. It's simple. The Muslim Brotherhood in the early 1980s assassinated Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. And if they could, the Muslim Brotherhood would assassinate the current Egyptian President al-Sisi and turn Egypt into a radical Muslim regime run by Sharia law. Despite the enmity between Egypt and Hamas, both sides believe it is of fundamental importance to sustain a relationship. For Hamas, it is due to the fact that Egypt controls the Rafiah crossing, the border crossing between Gaza and Egypt, and its opening depends on it. Also, Hamas is well aware that Egypt is essential as an economic channel for physical movement of people and goods to and from Gaza. Egypt has its own interest in leading the talks and achieving the settlement for several reasons. Mediation is important to them in order to improve Egypt's inner Arab stand, claiming a position of influence in the region. Egypt wants to be the leader. Mediation is also important to them because President al-Sisi wants to be viewed as a main figure dealing with the Palestinian problem and, of course, ensuring the stabilization of the region. Now understand, Egypt sympathizes with the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip, and the Egyptian government is committed to helping them, but it separates them from the leadership of Hamas, which it sees as radical and destructive. So, what does Egypt really want? I'm going to be blunt. Egypt would love for Hamas to disappear. You hear the Egyptians condemn Israel and call for an immediate cessation of war. But, behind closed doors, Egypt voices an opinion in which they would want to see Hamas be debilitated and essentially eliminated. Egypt President al-Sisi said this in a press conference, and I quote, We said that we are ready for this state to be demilitarized, and he's speaking of a future Palestinian state. And there can also be guarantees of forces, whether NATO forces, United Nations forces, Arab or American forces. Until we achieve security for both states, the nascent Palestinian state and the Israeli state. The next question is, is Egypt mediation in interest of Israel? The war between Israel and Hamas is yet another test for the Israeli-Egyptian relations. It holds the potential for either strengthening or deteriorating the relations. The current war presents Egypt with challenges. One challenge of Egypt is the fear that a massive amount of Palestinians will want to flee Gaza across the Rafiah border crossing directly into the Egyptian Sinai Desert. Although the crossing is now closed by Egypt, it'll be difficult for Egypt to prevent the crossing of multitudes of Palestinians that will run to the border and try and cross forcibly. Al-Sisi sees this possibility as a breach of Egypt's national security. Hence, Al-Sisi, once again the president of Egypt, has made abundantly clear that he will not allow Palestinians into Egypt, other than a few babies and other than those with dire health needs. He sees the Palestinians as a threat. In accordance with this policy, the Egyptians have already rejected American requests to take in Palestinians from Gaza. Additionally, 
the Egyptian regime is constantly needing to appease their public opinion that supports the Palestinians. So, as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza increases, the voices within Egypt will increase, calling for intervention and perhaps even for the suspension or severance of relations with Israel. And if that's the case, it could be easily understood why it is in Israel's interest to have the Egyptians be a mediator. But of course, that's not the only reason. And like everything else in the Middle East, if we want to understand why Israel does have an interest in Egyptian mediation, we have to go a little bit deeper in. So first off, Israel is interested in the disarming of the Gaza Strip from its military capabilities, be it Hamas now or anybody else in the future. Secondly, Israel is interested in establishing a stable government in the Gaza Strip and thus by preventing chaos that could once again become a base for exporting terrorism to Israel. Third, curbing the power of the radical resistance axis in the Middle East is of utmost importance. The axis such as Iran, Hezbollah, the Houthis of Yemen, and Hamas must be severed. That axis must be severed. And fourth, strengthening regional trends of peace, stability, and development, again in Israeli interest, as Israel did with the UAE, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and now talking to Saudi Arabia. Israel has yet to present an overall strategic plan for the day after the war. That is to say, the day after Hamas is no longer in power. Positioning Egypt as a main mediator and a key player in stabilizing the future reality in the Gaza Strip is really important. It is clear to Israel that in any situation, Egypt will be required to play a central role. And I want to finish by saying this. As I was finishing recording this episode, the ceasefire was broken by Hamas. They fired several rockets into the area of Israel by the Gaza Strip, and the war continues. If I might try and predict, although as the Talmud states, prophecy has been given to the fools, and yet I still want to take my chances and say, this war will continue for another several days. Hamas will be beaten up some more. Then they request another ceasefire, agreeing to release Israeli hostages. Ten per day as Israel mandates. This formula of fighting, then a ceasefire, that releases some hostages, and then renewal of war, can and probably will take place several times. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please share it and any other episodes. This episode and all others can be listened to on all podcast media sources such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen to this episode on InsideIsrael.fm. Once again, InsideIsrael.fm, not InsideIsrael.com. InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If willing, please log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the Support Us button.